1: Welcome to the MarTech Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about ways to use data as the landscape of data changes rapidly. Joining us is Quimby Melton, who is the CEO and co-founder of Confection, which collects stores and distributes data in a way that's unaffected by client-side disruptions involving cookies, cross-domain scripts, and device IDs. It's also compliant with global privacy laws, so hey, it's good for people too. Yesterday, Quimby and I talked about how to avoid the third-party cookie graveyard, and today we're going to continue the conversation talking about why CRMs, DSPs, and automation is only 75, maybe 80% effective. All right, here's the second part of my conversation with Quimby Melton, the CEO and co-founder of Confection. Quimby, welcome back to the MarTech Podcast.
2: Thanks so much, Ben. I'm glad to be here.
1: Excited to have you back on the show. Glad to continue our conversation. So yesterday we talked about the changes in how data is being passed. I think hopefully all marketers are aware third-party cookies are and the passing of third-party data is basically going away. Got about a year to get ready for it. And so that means that there's more of a reliance on first-party data. It's where your company confection comes in, helping companies gather as much first-party data as they can so they're not reliant on vendors to do enrichment of the data that they already have. There's a lot of different tools that plug third-party data in or or just data in general. The CRMs of the world, DSPs, marketing automation tools, you have a theory that these tools aren't as effective as marketers might think. Talk to me about why you think CRMs, DSPs, and automation, it's only 75 or 80% effective.
2: You know, it's funny, I can't actually leave with some of the other numbers we have because no one believes me. So we've done some case studies and we see it substantially higher than that. But the big picture is I think a lot of people, we talk about this issue just in terms of tags and cookies and cross domain scripts and things, but it's a lot more than that. It's a lot more about just then who accesses data and who possesses and controls it. It's really about the way, the end of the way that marketers and developers have gathered and used online data for three decades. So we're really moving from one paradigm into another one. And it's pretty scary, I think, from a marketing perspective, but it's also a really great opportunity to rethink the way that data moves around on the web and build a better, more compliant system. So as far as the why, why are these disruptions happening? When Safari and Firefox phased out support for third-party cookies in 2017, that immediately impacted 20 to 25% of web users because that's about the percentage of people who browse the web and use Safari and Firefox. Obviously, Chrome is, you know, 75% plus.
1: Poor Internet Explorer, you used to be so dominant.
2: I know, poor Internet Explorer and Opera, you know, these kind of fringy browsers now. It is pretty remarkable what happened with Internet Explorer. But so really, you know, if you look at a system where your scripts are being blocked by 20 to 25% of people who are browsing the web using Safari and Firefox, you're talking about information that can't flow into your CRM free, just to keep using that as an example. And that obviously is a problem. It's a pretty substantial amount of waste. And the problem is obviously when Chrome flips the switch, now you're talking about 75, 80% of people. And it's pretty amazing looking back and thinking about how much waste that is, you know, compounding every day for four years, 20 to 25%, it adds up to big numbers.
1: So there's the idea that you're not getting accurate data over the whole population because already we're seeing some browsers aren't using third-party data. Is that why the systems that we're relying on aren't wholly accurate?
2: So really what it is, scripts get blocked. And the most basic reason is that a browser like Brave, again, which has a small user base, but Firefox and Chrome can be set to work exactly like Brave and be just as privacy focused. So what happens is if these browsers under certain conditions block a script because they know that information that passes between you and the site is going to go off to a third party, then that event just goes nowhere. So what winds up happening is that script is blocked. The event goes nowhere and for a page view, for example, or a button click or whatever kind of event that you're tracking on the site. And that's really the problem. And I think it's also important to kind of scale up and think about how fragile the front-end data collection and distribution models are where it's really a Rube Goldberg machine, right? It involves cross-domain scripts. It involves cookie syncs, DSPs. And the system is very complex and very fragile, and it's not entirely unsurprising that a small thing like blocking one script, if it's an important script, would cause disruptive ripples all the way down through the ecosystem. So I would say at a high level, that's really what we see the most impact is event tracking being interrupted as a result of blocked scripts because they share information with third parties when they're executed.
1: All right. So if I understand correctly, I want to pull data into my CRM and the browsers are blocking some of those scripts. So I'm not getting 100% of the data. So I'm really not getting the entire population of people that I want to gather data from already. That's right. And then I'm taking the data that's in my CRM and I'm trying to advertise to those people. I'm running it through a DSP. And again, some people are blocking the cookies from DSPs. So the output to marketing isn't necessarily 100% effective. Talk to me about automation. Why is automation not necessarily always effective?
2: I think the use case matters in that context. So if you are collecting information that's spotty, and then you send information out, like in the form of an email blast or something like that, The email will still make it to your person's inbox, but the information that you've used to compose that message or organize the audience that it goes out to will lack the kind of context that you probably would like it to have and expect it to have inside your CRM or your marketing automation platform or wherever you send it from.
1: I mean, I guess that's just a quality of product coming out of the marketing automation system. If the data in your CRM isn't great, the marketing automation output isn't great as well. And then it's just not as effective messaging.
2: I think that's right. So if you get spotty information, like, you know, garbage in, garbage out. So if you have spotty, less contextually driven information coming in and then you try to use that to organize an audience segment or something like that, obviously the output is going to be far less reliable than it would be if the inputs were
1: better. Time for a one minute break to hear from our presenting sponsor, Mutinex. In 1919, John Wanamaker said, half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. I just don't know which half. Then join brands like Samsung, ING, and Asahi who make better marketing decisions with Mutinex. Mutinex Growth OX, the marketing mixed modeling platform that makes measuring ROI fast, easy, and cost effective. Request a demo at Mutinex.co. That's M U T I N E X.co. All right, so we're already seeing that a fair amount of the data that we're collecting and who we're reaching out to isn't reaching the whole population because of this third party data passage issue, Safari, Firefox being blocked, for the marketers that are listening to this conversation, should they be sitting there saying, oh, well, there's 25% of the people that I thought I was targeting, but I'm not, and my business is just doing what it is. So that's just table stakes. Or is there something they can do to effectively market to that other 25% of market share that they're missing?
2: There are different schools of thought on this, obviously. you know, A lot of the marketers that I speak with, and these are people that I admire very much, they really do see this return to a sort of monolithic audience model where you know they would say, well, you know, account level information or, you know, individual level information is less important. I just want to make sure that people who are interested in sports see this, right? Or people who are interested in a particular type of technology see this. So I take the ad vendor at their word that they're delivering these ads out to the right audience segment, and that's enough for me. And in some cases, that may be true. I would be skeptical of how accurate some of those audience groupings are, especially with the more independent ad networks. Nevertheless, if that works for you, it works for you. From my point of view, it really is when you're deep in the funnel, doing the kind of work that marketers do really, really well in terms of audience segmentations internally with your first party data, right? That can become somewhat problematic if you're lacking the right contextual information. Another thing that I talk about a lot is the value of aggregate data being you know, just as valuable as personally identifying information. And so honestly, when I think about it for Confection and other projects I've done in the past... We probably rely on aggregate data at least as much as personally identifying information. So when I get concerned about the future that we're entering, I really think about what's happening. What am I not seeing with respect to trends? What am I not seeing in terms of events? So when I go look at a report and I see a certain type of flow through a certain pipeline channel in my, on my website, if information's missing from that aggregate view because the event hasn't been imported, to me honestly, that's even more consequential than not knowing that John Doe is in Austin, Texas, or you know Jane Doe is in New York City. So for me, it's really about the loss that we get on the aggregate level so that we can go out and build accurate trends models and make better decisions about how customers are entering our pipeline, how people are discovering us and the channels they're coming in from.
1: The question I have for you is, do you think this is a bigger problem for B2B or B2C businesses? I think that personalization and sort of contextual marketing Probably matters when you're only looking for a handful of customers as opposed to when you're B2C, you can kind of broadly target, you don't necessarily think about who the individual customer is. You're not ABMing, you're not tailoring your marketing efforts specifically for them.
2: I think that's a really important point is the division on this in B2B and B2C. So when we, we set out with Confection, we thought we were building a B2B tool. And it still is a B2B tool, but some of our most engaged users are e-commerce companies. These are small like makeup companies, for example, who sell on the web. And for them, collecting as much information as they can about their consumers that they can feed into Klaviyo, for example, that is mission critical for them. So Confection really plugs in and says, "Okay, we're going to be the arbiter of truth and we're going to make sure that all the information makes it into Shopify or WooCommerce and also out to Klaviyo so that I can do better segmentation down the road. So the B2C use case was very interesting for us. And honestly, I've only really worked in B2B, so I've learned a lot about B2C over the years still think again, you know, from the B2B perspective, when generally you probably are working more on a trends analysis level where you're really interested in pipeline health. How are people finding your site so you can spend more on high-performing channels? The individual information is important, right? Especially if you're doing, like you said, kind of an ABM approach. But at the same time, the thing that really concerns me from a B2B perspective is making sure I have actionable, accurate, aggregate data that tells me stories about trends. So I guess there's a use case for both B2B and B2C in terms of confection specifically. And then more generally, you know, to your question, I think the issues that each camp's going to face are different, but equally important. So I think it's good to draw a distinction between the B2C use case and experience in the B2B one.
1: My takeaway from this conversation and yesterday's conversation is that there's no getting around that marketers are going to move more towards aggregate marketing than discrete personalization. Yes, we're going to take our first party data, but it's hard to come by and try to do as much personalization as we can. We're just going to have less volumes of data. So that means that we're going to be marketing more broadly. You know, and I think of how we do our paid media buys to promote the MarTech podcast There's always this debate of, do we retarget a lookalike audience based on the people that are listening to the show to try to find very specific audiences that are interested in MarTech and podcast? Or do we just buy audio ads for people that are interested in business and know that we're capturing this broad podcast audience and we'll get the marketers in that larger audience? At the end of the day, my perspective is that It really comes down to the media cost. If I can aggregately buy the marketing podcast audience knowing I'm getting the marketing segment within that for a low price, great. I'm happy to advertise to people that are not super, 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 super duper targeted because I might just catch a couple fish by accident as opposed to if I'm looking for people that are not necessarily podcast listeners, but I know are marketers, it has to be very targeted because I still have this big hurdle of what type of media do they consume? Is this the type of problem that other marketers are going through?
2: Almost certainly. Yes. And I think yours is a really interesting use case because, and please correct me if I'm wrong, give me a little bit of latitude here and correct me if I'm wrong, but. You're in an interesting position because success for you is a larger audience, right? And then you can use that larger audience to leverage increasingly large ad customers. Is that accurate?
1: From your lips to hopefully my checkbook. Okay.
2: Okay. So what's interesting about that is it's fairly unique if you're talking about something like like a SaaS or really any kind of product, right? Very different because you win as long as you increase your audience among a relevant demographic. And in some level, you're exactly right. Your relevant demographic is people interested in business, right? So I think you've set yourself up a nice pathway to success. That might be less true, again, if you're selling a, a very specific niche product, in which case you really have to work from the bottom of the funnel up in some ways rather than from the top down. So I think, again, these kinds of questions are important. And I think one of the reasons they can be difficult to solve is because they're so specific to a given enterprise, right? So like your goal is very different from a SaaS product, a niche SaaS product or something. And they're different from the company down the road that's trying to flip houses or something like that. So I think it's important as this fragmentation starts happening, right? In terms of marketing, every business, and obviously this is on the CMO's plate and anyone who's engaged in in marketing the enterprise is to have these very specific internal discussions and come up with a strategy that works for you, in particular for your business. We could probably come up with five other examples of companies that work in very unique ways and have very, very unique results as outcomes.
1: At the end of the day, next year is going to be a reshuffling of the deck. The deprecation of the passing of third-party data is going to have a massive effect on marketers. And for some of them positively, maybe it affects media rates in a way that benefits people that are great at collecting first-party data. And in some businesses where they're reliant on third-party data and have a difficult time collecting first-party data, they're going to be in trouble. At the center of it, there's also going to be the guys selling the shovels who are going to be very successful. Quimby, it looks like you're well-positioned to be in that space. Those are the guys that got rich during the gold rush. I hope this ends up being Confection's gold rush as well.
2: That's very kind. You know, I would say our goal at a high level is to ensure that three camps are happy sometimes I'll say that confection exists in a negative space formed by three positive pressures. They're top-down pressures from policymakers like GDPR, bottom-up pressures from audience, everyday web users who want more privacy and the businesses are squeezed in the middle. So really we try to push out and make sure that each one of those camps is happy. And that's our goal. That's what we work out every day.
1: Well, you're definitely in the center of a hotbed of marketing activity, and I appreciate you spending your time telling us about it. Thanks for coming on and being my guest.
2: Thanks very much, Ben.
1: All right. That wraps up this episode of the MarTech Podcast. Thanks to Quimby Melton, the CEO and co-founder of Confection, for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with Quimby, you can find a link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes. You can contact him on Twitter. His handle is OQM4. That's O-Q-M, the number four. Or you could visit his company's website, which is confection.io.